Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karasik, philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called Morenevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Hi, everybody. It's uh, Danielle Karapkin uh, speaking to you using the webyeshiva.org platform. Um, and we are studying Morenavuchim. I'm speaking to you from Thornhill, Ontario, in Bayat, Beth Avram Yosef, in Toronto, where we've been studying Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed for quite some time now. We are in the middle of section two out of the three sections of Morenavuchim. And we're in the middle of chapter 17, which we're going to conclude shortly, and we're going to begin chapter 18 today. Um, so uh, let's get our bearings. Where are we in the context of this discussion? Um, the Rambam is talking about the origins of the universe, cosmogony, and the, um, the great uh, challenge that the Rambam is faced with is as a student of Aristotle, who believed in an eternal universe, um, how do we respond to the fact that the Torah says that the world was created um, from absolute nothing? At least that's the way the Rambam reads the, the portions of Genesis. Um, and how do we reconcile the biblical account of creation with the Aristotelian theory of eternal existence? The Rambam here is forced to do something that uh, normally he wouldn't want to do, but which is to basically say that in this area, Aristotle uh, has not been proven. Um, and even like he said in chapter 16, even Aristotle himself acknowledged uh, and in chapter 15 as well, even Aristotle acknowledged that uh, this point was simply a theory and he could not uh, prove it in an ironclad way using philosophical methodology to actually prove this point. And so the first approach that the Rambam has taken is to weaken the argumentation process of Aristotle for an eternal universe. The second is that he detailed, and hearkening uh, back to a list that the Rambam had itemized in chapter 14 of the second section, um, Aristotle himself had presented four arguments based upon the nature of physics and the rules of physics um, uh, based on, on, on Aristotelian logic. Um, and those rules of physics seem to preclude the possibility of creation. And uh, the Rambam had presented at the beginning of chapter 17 a lengthy analogy um, about the impossibility of determining what the nature of a fetus was by looking at a fully mature and perfected human being. You look at a human being as an adult, and there's no way for you to extrapolate from looking at an adult what the status of that adult was when they were simply a fetus gestating in their mother's womb. For example, a human being breathes with their lungs. They um, obtain nutrition through their mouth. And when a fetus is in utero, it does not breathe. And it obtains its nutrition through the umbilical cord. 
and there are many different kinds of organs that are formed or malformed or, or um, underformed. Um, and there's just simply no way to determine what the physical nature of something is in its maturing phase based on the fully mature specimen that we're looking at now. In the same way, argues the Rambam, looking at scientific reality, looking at the rules of physics as they exist today is not a basis to determine or extrapolate what the rules of physics were eons ago at the time of creation. And as such, even though basic rules of physics, as we look at reality today, would dictate that something, that creation should not have occurred, um, that, that's an inappropriate um, extrapolation because we don't know what was, uh, what the physical reality was so many eons ago at the time of creation. And God could alter those rules of physics just as easily as maintain them as they are now. So that's where we are. We are on the bottom of page 297, and the Rambam is going to provide us with his synopsis. And we'll read actually the, this uh, last section of the chapter together. Um, actually, a very good friend of mine recently shared with me that he would prefer if we read some uh, more text out of the Rambam itself. So I will endeavor to do that whenever it's possible. Um, if we look at the bottom of page 297, um, we will, this is, we're using, of course, the Shlomo Pines edition um, published by the University of Chicago back in the 1960s. It's widely available on Amazon and in other venues. So he says on the very bottom last two lines, the essential point is, as we have mentioned, that a being's state of perfection and completion furnishes no indication of the state of that being preceding its perfection. It involves no disgracefulness for us. In other words, there's nothing wrong for us uh, to admit that if someone says that the heavens were generated before the earth or the earth before the heavens. In other words, even though the laws of physics would seem to indicate that everything came into existence all at once, um, and that if there was indeed a creation, it would have to follow certain patterns of science such that you couldn't have certain things without other things in the ether in, in existence. And yet we do find that there are some rabbis who say that the heavens were created before the earth and other rabbis say that the earth was created before the heavens. Um, what is he referring to? Um, uh, he's referring to a, a portion of Talmud, which we had recently in the Daf Yomi, from Tractate Chagiga, Daf Yud Bet Amid Aleph, page 12a. Let's take a look at that Gemara for just a second, because it's going to prove relevant in our understanding of the Rambam's interpretation of Talmudic text. Tanu Rabbanan, our sages taught, Beit Shammai Omrim, the house or the academy of Shammai Opine, Shamayim Nivru Tchila V'yacharkach Nivrei Ta'aretz. Heaven was first created, and then after heaven was created, the earth or our planet or physical reality as we know it on our planet was created. And remember, the Rambam takes an Aristotelian view that the matter of heaven is different from the matter of earth. Shenamar, and how does he know this? How do they know this? Bereshit bara Elohim Because just look at the first verse of the Torah. It says, in the beginning, God created heaven, and then earth. So you see that in this sequence, he heaven is mentioned first, and then earth. 
Beit Hillel say, no, first earth was created and then heaven. Shenamar, because as we look at a synopsis of creation that appears later in Parshat Bereshit, it says, Biyom asot Hashem Elohim, Eretz v'shamayim, on the day that God made earth and then heaven. So there seems to be a contradiction in the verses. Amar lahem Beit Hillel Shamai, uh, so Beit, Beit Hillel challenged Beit Shammai, Ledivreichem, according to you who suggest that heaven was created first, Adam bone aliyah bone bayit. Can we suggest that a person, when he's constructing a house, would first build the second story before building the first story? In other words, if you assume that the earth is the ground floor of reality and the heavens are above the earth, why would God create the second story before the first story? And then Beitilov provide a verse to support that idea that the heavens are like the attic or the second story of a structure. So Omar Lahem Beit Shamai Lebeitilel, Beit Shamai respond to Beitilel and they say, Adam according to you, would a person first build a footstool and then build a chair? Wouldn't it make sense to first build the chair and then to then to build the footstool? Because heaven and earth are create are compared to in another verse, Shenamar, Koamar Hashem Hashamaim Kisi Adom Raglai. As it says in this verse, that God says that the heavens are my throne and the earth is my footstool. So therefore, it only makes sense that God created his throne, his chair, and then customized his footstool to fit with his with his chair. And so obviously there's something going on over here. Vachachamim omrim, and the Chachamim are the third opinion, and they say that heaven and earth were created simultaneously, and they bring a verse to support their contention. As the verse says that they shall stand together. Heaven and earth will be brought to existence together. Now, the Gemara goes on a little bit, but this is the relevant section that I wanted to share with you. The Rambam actually uh, takes the side of the Chachamim later on in chapter 30, which we're going to discuss briefly now, um, uh, in, in, in very, very brief, uh, in just a moment. Um, but uh, the Rambam looks at this Gemara and says that if you take the text literally, then what Beit Shammai are, and Beit Hillel are debating is a scientific fact, they are debating whether scientifically, it, from a historical standpoint, which did God create first? Now, understandably, suggesting that heaven was created before earth or earth was created before heaven is, based on the Rambam's understanding of science, a scientific impossibility, based upon the fact that we understand that uh, the heavenly matter influences earthly matter and the two are dependent upon each other, or at least earthly matter is dependent upon heavenly matter. And so certainly it becomes problematic, especially for Beit Hillel to suggest that earth was created first and then heaven. But uh, the point that he's making is that that's based on current scientific reality. It's not based on what scientific reality and the rules of physics were eons ago when creation took place. And the rules of physics might have been completely different. And therefore, it also is not disgraceful for us 
to suggest that the heavens existed without stars, which is what the, uh, the Torah says. The, the Torah says that God created heaven first, and only on the fourth day of creation did God create the celestial bodies. So how could there be heavens without stars? The Gemara addresses on this very same page in Tractate Chagig. I did not uh, 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 copy that Gemara for you. But the, but the Talmud says that indeed this presents us with a conundrum, but uh, we can resolve it by saying that God created heavens without stars, but he created the stars together with them and then put the stars in place on the fourth day, like sort of hung them up in their proper place on the fourth day, whatever that means. But again, all of this is basically a defiance of the rules of physics uh, based on how we understand physics today. The Rambam says, you can understand the Gemara at face value, Pashat Pshat, without having to be bothered by this or be feel disgraced by this, because you cannot base the rules of physics back then based on the rules of physics today. Or that a particular species of animals has existed without another species being in existence. Now, what the Rambam is referring to here is that we know that creation of the animal kingdom was spread out over two days. On the fifth day, God created birds and fish. On the sixth day, God created all land creatures. And that seems to be bizarre, because if we're going to subscribe to a scientific model, whatever model the Rambam was using, and certainly the model that we would subscribe to, which has to do with um, uh, some kind of evolutionary theory of organisms evolving into more complex creatures, it would certainly stand to reason that uh, um, the evolutionary process was not strictly divided between uh, aquatic and birds, uh, bird creatures on one uh, period of evolution, and then land creatures came to existence at another period of evolution. That doesn't seem to be scientifically accurate, but that shouldn't bother us anyway, because if God willed it into existence, all of creation, God could have altered the rules of physics as well. And he says, for all this applies to the state of this universe when it was being generated. Similarly, in the case of animals, when they are being generated, again, we also see that the rules of science that we would subscribe to today when looking at a medically healthy uh, person today, does those rules of, um, of medicine do not apply to the fetus. So for example, the heart exists in the fetus before the testicles are formed. The, um, the circulatory system uh, of blood pumping through the body uh, starts to work before the endocrine system of the body uh, starts to come into effect to, to determine the child's gender and the hormonal structure of the organism. A circumstance that may be ocularly perceived. We see this based on experimentation on fetal tissue and the veins before the bones is another thing that we witness taking happen in a gestating embryo to a fetus. And this is so in spite of the fact that after the animal has achieved perfection, after the living creature has reached maturity, whether it be an animal or a human being, no part of its body can exist in it if any part of all the others without which the individual cannot possibly endure does not exist. So a person cannot exist without a skeletal structure, right? You try to take out a person's entire skeleton, they won't survive a moment. And yet an embryo survives quite well in its mother's womb without having any kind of skeletal structure whatsoever. And therefore the Rambam extending this analogy of the fetus essentially says 
the, law, the rules of science today do not dictate what the rules of science were back then. And then he writes a very important point. All these assertions are needed if the text of scripture is taken in its external sense, even though it must not be so taken as shall be explained when we shall speak of it at length. And the Rambam is basically saying, you know that Gemara that I just cited for you from tractate Chagiga with this machlokus between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, whether heaven was created first or earth was created first. He says, I've explained that Gemara using the Pashup Shat, the simple explanation. And I've said that that does not pose a scientific challenge to our knowledge of science today. But the reality is that that's not actually the way, to, the correct way to read the Gemara. The Gemara should not be taken at face value. And, and the Rambam, uh, in, as is witnessed by his Mishnah commentary in his introduction to the 10th chapter of Tractate Sanhedrin, was very much a critic of people who read the Gemara too literally and too superficially. The Rambam felt that there are many people who look at a piece of Gemara like this one in Tractate Chagiga, take it literally as the description of scientific fact, when in reality it has nothing to do with a description of what was what scientifically occurred historically, but rather is a description of what had primacy in creation. If we look at the Gemara from a philosophical point of view, instead of from a physically a, a physical sciences point of view, it takes on a completely different meaning. And this is really the subject of chapter 30. And I just really just copied from the Friedlander translation, which is available online. I just copied the first uh, little, first few lines uh, of Morenevuchim chapter 30. And if we, uh, you have it here in the handout, uh, where the, and by the way, the handout is available for download uh, on Facebook. You go to the Facebook group, Shi'ur in Morenevuchim or it's available on webyeshiva.org in the course description for today's lecture. Um, in Morinavuchim chapter 30 of section two, the Rambam starts off by saying that there is a difference between first and beginning. In Hebrew, those words are rishon and hatchala. Rishon means first and hatchala means a beginning. What is, what is the difference between the two? The latter, the word hatchala, exists in the thing of which it is the beginning or coexists with it, it need not precede it. Meaning that when you say that something is the tequila, uh, it has primacy or is the, the, the prime item, it doesn't necessarily mean that chronological, it, chronologically it precedes everything else in the organism, but rather it is telling you that it is primal. It has the, uh, the most or the highest level of importance or it is the objective of the entire organism. So if he gives you an example, he says, the heart is the hatchala of the living being. The element is the beginning of that of which it is the basis. And when it comes to basic building blocks of what makes up a chair, for example, we would say the wood is the beginning, is the hatchala. The term first, rishon, is likewise applied to things of this kind, but is also employed in cases where precedence in time alone is to be expressed, and the thing which precedes it is not the beginning, the hatchala, or cause of the thing that follows. The universe, and I'm skipping a little bit just to get to the crux of what he wants to introduce us to, the universe has not been created out of an element that preceded it in time, since time itself formed part of the creation. For this reason, scripture employs the term bereshit in a principle in which the bet is a preposition denoting in. 
And what that means is, is that there was a certain primacy that God vested within creation. What is the most important component of creation? There's a certain primacy, a certain sort of emphasis on certain components of creation. And that's what, that's the way the Rambam reads the first verse of Genesis, Bereshit, that it, in the most primal parts of creation were heaven and earth. Um, the true explanation of the first verse of Genesis is as follows. In creating a principle or the most basic or the most primal thing in the universe, God created the beings above and the things below. This explanation is in accordance with the theory of the creation. Now, if we understand the Rambam that way, I mean, the, 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 the verse in Genesis that way, and then we superimpose it, the discussion back to tractate Chagiga, when Beit Shammai say that heaven was created techila, they don't mean chronologically which one preceded uh, which. Did, did, was, was heaven created before earth or was earth created before heaven? but rather which component of creation has primacy, heaven or earth, which is more important or centrally focused in God's vision um, in his creation? Is heaven the more uh, uh, important component of creation in God's eyes or is earth the more important component of creation in God's eyes? And once we look at it that way, it opens up completely new vistas for us to understand this really, this Gemara is foundational in understanding so many of the disputes between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel in general. And it really opens up a, a whole new discussion about how we could take every single machloket between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel that appear throughout Shas and actually apply this idea, what is more important, heaven or earth, the life of the next world or the life of this world? and really try to really um, uh, apply that and see how there's consistency in the worldview of the Academy of Shammai uh, versus the word worldview of the Academy of Hillel. But that's the point that the Rambam wants to make, wants to let us know, and it's really just an aside for the purposes of, of being accurate in portraying uh, the first verse in Genesis. But that notwithstanding, the Rambam still says, the principle that I'm getting across to you in this chapter is that don't allow the rules of science today dictate how science operated back in the time of creation. You ought to memorize or really preserve this notion is really what the Rambam is saying. For it is a great wall that I have built around the Torah, a wall that surrounds it, warding off the stones of all those who project these missiles against it. That's that the, that the rules of science today cannot be extrapolated to dictate what was eons ago. However, should Aristotle, and we're continuing on the next paragraph on page 298, should Aristotle, I mean to say, he who adopts his opinion, argue against us by saying, if this existence provides no indication for us, how do you know that it is generated and that there has existed another nature that has generated it? In other words, all you've done so far, Rambam, is to prove that, or is to argue that we cannot um, demonstrate that the world has eternally existed based upon current scientific models. But have you proved that the world was created? No, not at all. And so to that, the Rambam responds, you're right. That was not my objective at this point. My objective at this point was merely to deflect 
the Arist four Aristotelian proofs based on the rules of physics. Now, and then he says, now I'm just skipping a couple lines. Now this contention cannot be proved to be impossible by inferences drawn from the nature of what exists. When the possibility of this contention has been established, as we have made clear, we shall go back and we shall make prevail the opinion asserting creation and time. That's coming up in a later chapter. But for now, I've succeeded in my objective for this chapter, which is simply to demonstrate that the Aristotelian proofs are not proofs at all. In this question, right, or in this chapter, no way remains open to, hit, to him, the opponent of creation, except to show the impossibility for the world having been created in time, not by starting from the nature of being the rules of physics, but by starting from the judgments of the intellect with regard to the deity. And now the Rambam basically turns to sort of a preview of the next chapter. And he basically points out the following. He says, now, if you recall, um, there were four proofs that I showed you in chapter 14 that prove or allegedly prove the eternality of the universe based on the rules of physics today. But then I provided you an additional three proofs not based on the rules of physics, but based on the nature of what he calls the deity, the nature of God. Based on our understanding of God, at least certainly from an Aristotelian point of view of what that deity is about, it, that too should demonstrate that the world has eternally existed based on God's nature. And that, says the Rambam, is a much more formidable um, challenge for me to go up against because I can no longer use the argument that I've been using in this chapter, that the rules of physics have changed or the rules of God. I can't say that the rules of God has, have changed because God by his very definition is immutable and unchanging. So therefore I shall accordingly show you in a following chapter, how doubts can be cast on these methods that no proof whatever can be established or correct by means of them. And this is where we get into the beginning of chapter 18. So let me just um, review um, the three proofs based on the nature of God that the Rambam had provided us back in chapter 14. Um, um, these were, when we looked at them in the chapter 14, were, were proofs six, seven, and eight. And the, the proofs are as follows. Number one, God cannot exist in potentia. And if you recall, based on our learning of Aristotelian uh, philosophy, uh, Aristotle places a great emphasis on that which exists in potentia and that which exists in actu, or that which exists in potentiality or in actual versus actuality. What we had given as the analogy is that um, um, before a carpenter fashions a chair out of wood, the block of wood is a chair in potentia. It is a chair that is waiting to come into existence. Once the actual manufacturing process is completed, it is now a chair in actu, in actuality. And essentially the argument is that God cannot exist in potentia and God by his definition is a mover of existence. And if God did not, did create the world from nothing, then before creation, God was an agent of creation in potentiality and not in actuality. Thus, at the time of creation, God changed from potential agent to actual agent, but it is impossible to apply potentiality or change to God. This is a great challenge to the creation narrative, and the Rambam will respond to this in chapter 18, which is our, the chapter that we're going to begin presently. 
Argument number two, God cannot possess impediments or influences that cause him to change. Um, the only reason why an agent will act at one moment and not another is either because of A, an impediment that prevented that agent from acting earlier, or B, an influence that prompted that agent to act now versus before. Because God has neither impediments nor influences, nothing prevents God from acting and nothing prompts God or um, stimulates God to action. God is completely independent of anything else. And because God has neither, it is not possible that there could have been a creation at a given time. Why did God choose to create at one specific moment versus not a moment before and not a moment later? If God could not or was impeded in some way uh, from creating a moment before he created, does that not imply that God can be impeded, which is a contradiction to the nature or the definition of what it means to be God? And if God was prompted to create earlier than later, uh, God is not stimulated or prompted by anything external to him. So therefore, that's argument number two. And argument number three, God is perfect and eternally wise, and therefore we assume that the universe would be a reflection of that. God is perfect and his acts are perfect. And as to quote Aristotle directly, nature is wise and does nothing for naught. The world which emanates from a perfect, all-wise and eternal God must also be perfect, all-wise and eternal. So if God is eternal, anything that emanates from him must also be eternal based on the nature of God's perfection. And so these are the three arguments using the nature of God to argue for an eternal universe. So um, uh, I really see that we're running out of time today. Uh, we'll only get started on chapter 18 today, just to read the first few lines. Um, the first method, and this is on page 299, beginning of chapter 18. The first method they mention is the one through which, in their opinion, we are obliged to admit that the deity passed from potentiality to actuality inasmuch as he acted at a certain time and did not act at another time. And so to respond to this, the Rambam says the way to destroy this doubt is eminently clear. For this conclusion necessarily follows only with regard to anything composed of matter which is endowed with possibility and a form. So it's true that a chair exists in potentia when it's still just a block of wood. That's true. Why? Because we're dealing with a material item, something that is made of matter and simply lacks form because the carpenter has not instilled the form of a chair within the block of wood yet, okay? When such a body acts in virtue of its form after not having acted, there was undoubtedly in it a thing that was in potentia and afterwards made the, transi the transition into actuality. So clearly, when the chair transitions from a block of wood into a chair, so something existed within that block of wood in potentia and afterwards it transitioned into actuality. Accordingly, it undoubtedly must have undergone the action of something causing it to make this transition. For this premise has been demonstrated only with regard to things endowed with matter. On the other hand, that which is not a body and is not endowed with matter has its in its essence 
no possibility in any respect whatsoever, and thus all that it has, has is always inactive. When you're dealing with immaterial bodies or immaterial things, I guess you could say, such as God or anything else which has no matter uh, attributed to it, you cannot say that before it acts, it is only uh, existing in potentiality. Those terms only apply to material things. They do not apply to immaterial things. Now, this you may think is a very abstract philosophical argument, but the Rambam is going to, uh, in as we continue along chapter 18, is going to present this argument based on uh, um, uh, his presentation once again of this entity called the active intellect. For those of you who have been with us for the last uh, several dozen lectures, will recall that we discussed the active intellect on a number of occasions. Uh, so in our next lecture, when we demonstrate the Rambam's argument based on his uh, uh, presentation of the active intellect once again, we'll review what that entity called the Seichel uh, Hapoel or the Akal uh, Fael actually is. We will uh, then uh, review, after reviewing it, we will show that the active intellect is not always active, but acts and then is dormant and then acts again. And yet the active intellect always exists in actuality or in active. And that will actually help to demonstrate that when you're dealing with things that are not material, such as entities like the active intellect or God for that matter, you don't have to be constantly active in order to be existent in actuality. Of course, these are, for us, they, they sound to be like semantical arguments, but from a, from a philosophical world that the Rambam was living in, these are very, very relevant terms that uh, where the stakes are quite high on these issues. So we will leave it here for today. We'll pick up on this idea and then Bezrat uh, Hashem, we will complete chapter 18 and go through all three uh, refutations of the three arguments based on the nature of God um, as to why the universe, uh, uh, to, to, to show that these proofs of the eternality of the universe are indeed not valid proofs. Okay, and so we'll hold it here for today. Let me wish you the rest of the good rest of the week and we'll pick it up Bezrat Hashem next week. Take care now.